All right. Thank you, guys. Less noodly without Linda here. Yeah, so. It's a music term, as if I know. Anyway, I wanted to start off this morning and take a few minutes to ruin some common images for you. You ready for that? Are you ready? Tell me what you see. Some of you see a black goblet. And some of you see white silhouettes of two people. Almost nose to nose looking at each other. Can you see them both now? Right? Isn't that cool? How about this one? Some of you see an elderly woman. Others of you see a very young girl. You see it now. Now, when I first showed you each of those images, you probably didn't see them both ways. You could only see one way. You only saw the way that you initially saw it, and you'll stick like that. But now... After I told you what to look for, and that's the key, after I told you what to look for, which, by the way, you'll never be able to unsee. So if you ever look at these again, you're haunted by both. But anyway, once you know what to look for, you know what to see. And my experience with the Bible is the same. When we read the Bible, we can't see everything if we don't know it's there. We can't see what we don't know exists. We can't understand what we're seeing when we don't know what we're looking at or when we don't know what we're looking for. Now, I wanted to start off by sharing with you a Bible example. I've told some of you about this before, but given the time of the year that we're going into and the fact that most people still don't understand it, it's worth talking about again It's truly one of my favorite, favorite misinterpretations of the Bible. Because I've been a Jesus follower for about 30 years now. But as recently as last week, I've heard this passage misinterpreted and misunderstood. In fact, about 99.5% of the people I've ever met misunderstand and misinterpret the passage we're about to talk about. So, what's coming up? in a couple of weeks, right? Tax day, it's April 15th. This year it's April 17th because the 15th falls on the weekend. And every year somebody says to me, particularly my accountant friends, every year someone says to me, it's time to render unto Caesar. Have you heard that before? Gotta render unto Caesar, gotta render unto Caesar. Time to pay my taxes, gotta render unto Caesar, right? And It's interesting, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell a version of this same story. It's the story of when Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passion Week. We have just begun Passion Week. That's Jesus' final week before the crucifixion. And when Jesus was in Jerusalem during Passion Week, he was confronted by the religious leaders who were trying to trap him. They were trying to get him to say something that could be interpreted as him trying to incite a rebellion against the Romans. Because if they could get him to say something that made it seem like he was trying to incite a rebellion, they could arrest him. All right? Now, in connection with that, 
Mark's gospel, chapter 12, records the exchange that took place on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Today's the Sunday of Passion Week. So on the Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark 12, 13, let's read. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the Herodians were essentially the, the, Hellen, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, the people who were Jewish, but they were really more part of the modern Greek culture. So they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words, right? They're trying to trip him up. And they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, now just listen, just listen to the kissing up that goes on here. This is really amazing. Teacher, we know, I'm adding emphasis, but this is the way it should be read. We know that you are a man of integrity. We know that about you, Jesus. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, they thought they were being so clever, like most people do when they're kind of trying to gain your favor. They always think they're being so clever, buttering you up. And they were trying to butter Jesus up. And they were trying to get him to lower his defenses. And then the religious leaders pressed on. And then they delivered a gotcha question to Jesus. So here's what they said in verse 14. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, here's why they thought they were so clever. They figured that they worded their question in such a way that any answer Jesus gave would result in his downfall. Because if Jesus had said, why, yes, you must be loyal to Caesar and you must pay your taxes to Caesar... If he said that, the Jews in the audience would be inclined to write Jesus off because they would think, oh, great, you're just another untrustworthy collaborator with the Romans. And then if he was just another untrustworthy collaborator, you know, like a tax collector, then they wouldn't see him as the savior that they were waiting for who was to come along and sort of liberate them from Roman rule. Now, on the flip side, on the other hand, if Jesus answered no, you don't have to pay your taxes, then the Roman authorities would have the right to arrest Jesus for sedition, and they finally could remove Jesus from the public eye. And so they were very proud of their cleverness. But Jesus wasn't falling for it. This is really cool. Verse 15, Jesus knew what they were doing, okay? So I didn't oversell that. They were trying to kiss up to him, and Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He was on to their little scheme, and he was about to shut them down in the most awesome way. So here's what he says. This is so cool. That's in the Bible here. Why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, bring me a denarius, and let me take a look at it. And it's here that knowing the trick, knowing the background, knowing the unseen stuff, knowing what to look for comes in handy. You see, the, the thing that so many people miss about this scene is that the entire exchange hinges right here. It hinges on the sentence, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That's, that's the sentence right there. Did you know that? That's the most important sentence there is. And then the one that follows seals the fate. The one that follows. Here's what happened. They brought the coin. Bring me a denarius, let me take a look at it, and they brought the coin. Somebody among the religious leaders was carrying a denarius. 
What's a denarius? Well, it equaled about a day's wage, I think. This is the coin, the denarius that Jesus was asking for. And so when the religious leader produced this denarius, here you go, Jesus. At the moment the religious leader handed that denarius to Jesus, he won over the crowd. He won over the Jews in the crowd. Why? Because the Jews in the crowd knew what their law taught. Here's what their law taught. We find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Okay? Now that's, by the way, referring to idolatry. You can't make an idolatrous image. You can't make an image of a person or an animal that you could worship. Interestingly, the currency in Israel today still does not contain any people or animals. It's always a plant or a leaf or something like that. So the mere fact that these so-called righteous Jewish religious leaders were able to produce a denarius, the mere fact that they were carrying one, allowed the crowd to see them for what they were, sinful idolaters according to Jewish law as reflected in this verse in Exodus. So as a result, anything else that those religious leaders said about Jesus was immediately discounted by Jesus' followers. And if you didn't know that, you missed the whole point of the story. You thought this was about paying your taxes. It had nothing to do with paying your taxes. And if you don't know all the background, you would have no way of seeing that to be true. So from there, we'll finish up this part of the story. Jesus moved on to dispatch their potential sedition claim, and he did so with a wordplay. This is so cool, so on brand for Jesus. Here's what he says. And Jesus asked them, so whose image is this? Whose picture's on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And with that, unbeknownst to the Romans who were listening, Jesus had them right where he wanted them. So then Jesus says this. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, at first blush, it's understandable how people could have interpreted Jesus' words to mean the taxes belong to Caesar. Right? After all, it was Caesar's picture on the coin. And that's the way the Romans who heard it understood it. But that's not what Jesus was saying. How do you know that? Well, it's easy. Whenever we're looking at Scripture and we're trying to interpret Scripture, we always interpret Scripture by Scripture. Okay? So, by Scripture, what belongs to God? Here, let me help you with that. Deuteronomy 10.14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. What belongs to God? Everything. How about this one? Psalm 89, 11. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. Now one from the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I could keep going with this for a while, but I think you get the point, okay? What belongs to God? Everything. And if everything belongs to God, what belongs to Caesar? No thing, right? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Score here, Jesus too, religious leaders, zero. And that's why, verse 17, they were amazed with him. 
All of that to say, knowing the background, knowing the important details makes all the difference in understanding the Bible. That's why we spend so much time talking about context and background, because you need to know that to understand what you're reading. And all of this brings us to today, Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is what we call the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem to begin Passion Week, to begin his final week on earth. You might be familiar with the activities and the events of the day. We find it in Mark chapter 11, among other places. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And then Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, through the gates, on the back of a donkey, to the sounds of the adoring crowds, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So did you see it? It's one of the most meaningful observations of the day. But you might not have seen it. Because to understand it, you need to know the backstory. So today, let's have a look at the backstory. All right? Now, from this point, so this is the beginning of Passion Week, okay, the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection, we're going to go back six months in that year, six months before the event. We're going back to the fall of the year before the crucifixion, during another one of Jesus' visits to Jerusalem. We can read about it in John chapter 2. Here we go. John chapter... I'm sorry, John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. What is the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths in Hebrew is known as Sukkoth. It is one of the three pilgrimage festivals in ancient Judaism. A pilgrimage festival was a festival in which the faithful, the Jews, were commanded by Jewish law to travel to, to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate. There are three pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish faith. One is the Feast of Booths. Sukkoth, which takes place in the fall, right around harvest. And by the way, for Sukkoth, maybe if you live in a neighborhood where there are Orthodox Jews living close by, you'll see it in the fall, they set up a booth outside. They sort of build this really weird structure, and they hang fruit and grass and things like that from it, and they'll go out and eat in the structure. Some people even sleep in it. So that's what Sukkoth is. It takes place in the fall. The other pilgrimage festival is Pesach, or Passover, which takes place in the early spring. And the third one is Shavuot, or Pentecost. You know Pentecost was a Jewish holiday? It is. Shavuot. And that takes place in the late spring. So, much like Passover, during Sukkoth, hundreds and thousands of religious pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate. And at Sukkoth, the Jews commemorated 40 years of wandering in the desert. And then, to celebrate, they enjoyed a feast that celebrates the completion of a bountiful harvest. So it's a harvest festival. Now, during each Jewish pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the Romans made sure to make their presence known. So for Sukkoth, as was his custom, the Roman governor of Judea at that time, do you remember his name? Pontius Pilate. He rode into Jerusalem along with 3,000 soldiers, 3,000 men at his disposal. You see, Pilate hated these festivals. Pilate wasn't fond of the Jewish people. 
he, he had little patience for the Jewish ways, and he was well aware that the Jews didn't much like the Romans either, and that they weren't loyal to the Romans. But you see, Pontius Pilate during that time, see, everything has always been political. Even back then, he had to walk a fine line during these Jewish festivals. Because if he did something wrong and it caused the Jews to revolt, which they were wont to do when they gathered in such large numbers, Pilate would be held responsible for the, re for the revolution. But if he cracked down too hard, he could be recalled to Rome for disobeying Caesar's order because Caesar actually was kind of fond of the Jews in a way. And he asked that the Jewish people be treated kindly as a sacred trust. He appreciated their, their faithfulness and he appreciated their behavior most of the time and that they were actually adding value to that sort of sandbox region of the Roman Empire. So Pilate tolerated the Feast of Booths. Now by that time, Pontius Pilate had been governor of Judea for about three years. And his, as governor, he had a pretty easy job. His job should have been as simple as just mediating local disputes and keeping the peace. But in fact, his role was more difficult. You see, in his position, Pilate did some things that troubled the Jewish people, that aggravated and irritated the Jewish people, caused a bit of consternation among the Jewish population. In fact, when writing about Pontius Pilate, the Jewish philosopher Philo wrote that Pilate was a man of inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition. For instance, on one occasion, Pilate ordered Roman banners to be hung on the Jewish temple. Okay, that's a desecration. And not only did the residents of Jerusalem succeed in having the banners removed, but they told on Pilate. They wrote a letter to Caesar, and they detailed Pilate's highly offensive action. And Caesar got mad when he received the letter. He became furious, according to Philo. And according to Philo, Caesar immediately wrote Pilate and rebuked him a thousand times for his, newly, his newfangled audacity. Pilate also had the idea of building a new aqueduct to bring water to Jerusalem. How do you think he paid for it? He took the money from the Jews. He took the money from the temple treasury. And this outraged the Jewish population, and it led to an uprising. So I give you that background to tell you that by the time Sukkoth rolled around that year, tensions were running hot. Okay, this is a powder keg. And Pilate was drawing all the blame. They're blaming all of these tensions on Pontius Pilate. So when Pilate appeared in the streets of Jerusalem, drawing courage from the sides of the crowd, many people cursed him, and they thought... Well, I can scream at him from the crowd. No one will know who I am. I'm, I'm anonymous if I do so. It's kind of like the internet, isn't it? People feel anonymous. They could say whatever horrible things they want to say. They would never say some of those things to your face, but they love to say it when they're anonymous. So that's what the people did. They were screaming at Pilate. They figured, I'm in a crowd. Who's going to pick me out? But Pilate anticipated this protest. So he disguised hundreds of his soldiers as Jewish peasants. And he gave them orders to carry a club or a dagger beneath their robes. And when the crowd marched on the palace to jeer more violently at Pilate, Pilate's soldiers in the crowd, dressed as Jewish peasants, surrounded the mob and attacked them by beating them and stabbing them, these unarmed Jewish pilgrims. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote, There were a great number of them slain by this means. And others of them ran away wounded. An end was put to this sedition. Now all this to say, 
that to the Jewish people, Pontius Pilate was a villain. They thought of him as spiteful and angry. They spoke of his venality and his violence and his stealing and his assaults and his abusive behavior and his frequent executions of untried prisoners and his endless savage ferocity. In addition to Pilate, one of their own, one of the Jewish people's own people was just as culpable. Because Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, couldn't rule the Jewish people without the help of an insider. And that insider's name was Joseph Caiaphas. He's the Jewish high priest and leader of the Jewish judicial court known as the Sanhedrin. I know if you've been to church a while, you've been hearing all these words for for some time, and now I hope you know what they mean. Now, Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest, was he was a politician. He was a master politician. And he knew that the emperor, the Caesar, not only believed it was important to uphold Jewish traditions, but it was also important to keep that hot-tempered Pontius Pilate on a very short leash. So Pilate might have been in charge of Judea, but Caiaphas was the one who ran the place on a day-to-day basis. He was in charge of running Jerusalem on a day-to-day basis. And he hid his own cruel agenda because he was a politician first and foremost, but he hid his agenda in being religious and pretending he was very pious. See, a few people in Jerusalem realized that Caiaphas, the same man who would lead them in the temple in the rite for the atonement of their sins, appeared in the temple courts on Passover in Yom Kippur wearing the most dazzling ceremonial robes. They they didn't realize that this guy, this religious giant, was also a dear friend of Rome and the emperor. Caiaphas, the same man who stood in the presence of God in the temple and saw that sins were forgiven, that guy, Caiaphas, was also the high priest who raised no objection when Pilate looted the temple funds. And Caiaphas said nothing at all when the Jews were massacred in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, prior to Caiaphas, high priests were easily replaced for acts of insubordination. But Caiaphas, who, by the way, was a member of the Sadducee party, developed a simple and brilliant technique. This is how Caiaphas held on to his power. You know what he did? He stayed out of Rome's way. That's what he did. Which has, by the way, been the Jewish approach to politics Really, up until very recently, stay, just stay out of the way. Leave us alone. We have nothing to do with this. Okay? And as a reward for Caiaphas' discretion, Rome usually stayed out of the temple's business. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone, and vice versa. The former helped Pilate keep his job, and the latter increased Caiaphas's power. So the last thing Pontius Pilate needed, the last thing Caiaphas needed, was for a messianic figure to come along and upset the apple cart, upset the balance of power. So do you see what's happening here? We've got this political situation, Jews versus Romans. We've got power, intrigue, people double-dealing, all that stuff. And that's precisely why during Sukkoth, Caiaphas and the religious authorities planned to arrest Jesus. Okay, so six months before what we're talking about On Palm Sunday, six months before, they planned to arrest Jesus the moment he stepped into the holy city. But Jesus, of course, had other plans. It was the disciples who wanted Jesus to come with them to Jerusalem. So check this out in John chapter 7. Jesus' brothers said to him, so we're not talking about his blood brothers, we're talking about his followers, leave Galilee and go to Judea. Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, so that the disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. So they're saying, come on, Jesus, you want people to know who you are. You can't be in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers 
did not believe in him. They're basically saying, you keep saying you're the Messiah, so tell the world you're the Messiah. The disciples were eager for Jesus to publicly announce that he was the Christ, that he was the Savior, the Messiah. And they tried to advise him as such. But, verse 6, Jesus told them, nah, not yet. My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So, the religious leaders in Jerusalem remembered the disciples' faces from their mission to Galilee during that time. So when the religious leaders saw the disciples enter Jerusalem for Sukkoth without Jesus, they were immediately frustrated. This is all in the Bible. Did you know this? John chapter 7, verse 11. Now at the festival, so this is Sukkoth, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. They didn't know how people really felt about Jesus, so the people were always buzzing and gossiping. Isn't it weird how nothing is different? Nothing is different 2,000 years later. Rumors about Jesus were swirling. He was trending, okay? He was... The rumors against him were ratioed, okay? He was total. So, for days, speculation spread throughout the city of Jerusalem, but no one had an answer about where Jesus was, not even his own disciples. Now, the festival of Sukkoth lasts eight days. And so it wasn't until halfway through the festival that Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. So halfway through the celebration, day four, day five, Jesus secretly traveled to Jerusalem. And he slipped quietly into the temple courts. Nobody knew he was coming. And then he began to boldly teach about truth and justice. And those who heard him were going, wait a minute. Verse 25, isn't that the guy they're trying to kill? Buzz, 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 right? And that's how it's working. And some in the crowd said, have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? Think about this. This is all gossip. This is all people writing down gossip. It's this amazing stuff. And Jesus came close to admitting that he was the Christ, but at that time he didn't. And then the Pharisees and the high priests sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus for blasphemy. But they didn't arrest him. Why not? Verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring this Jesus guy in? And they answered, because have you ever listened to that guy? He's amazing. No one ever spoke the way this man does. They couldn't arrest him. They couldn't kill him. So Jesus continued to teach in the temple courts for the rest of Sukkoth. And it was during that time that he told the crowds, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he told them, I am going away, and where I go, you cannot come. And soon thereafter, he left town. So he didn't get killed at that time. And after Jesus left, the people talked about him, and many were beginning to believe that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ. But others were not so sure, but they'd heard the things that he said, and they wanted so badly to believe that he was the Messiah. The Jews longed for the coming of their Messiah, for their Messiah that they thought would defeat the Romans, would put down this political situation that they had, put an end to the humiliation, put an end to the violence, put an end to the financial terrorism imposed on them by the Roman overlords. You see, for the Jewish people... That's all they had. It was their hope that gave them the courage to persevere in the face of Rome's unrelenting cruelty. Well, the Hebrew prophets had promised 
that a Messiah would come. And while to that moment, though Jesus had made several allusions to being the Messiah, he hadn't publicly said the words, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And though the less literate among the people were waiting for a verbal pronouncement from Jesus, the majority didn't need to hear him say those words. They were simply waiting for the moment when the Messiah, when the son of David, would ride into Jerusalem, here it comes, sports fans, on a donkey. A thousand years earlier, a man named Samuel recorded the vision of the prophet Nathan, who served King David, and told him how God's Messiah would be one of his, David's, descendants. Here's what Samuel wrote in 2 Samuel 7. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And 500 years before that, the Hebrew prophet Zechariah foretold what the arrival of the Messiah would look like. Here's what Zechariah said. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Every member of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish ruling court, knew the words of Nathan and knew the words of Zechariah. And they were waiting for the right person. They were waiting for the right sign. But Zechariah's prophecy told them even more. In Zechariah 9, the prophet detailed the global purpose, the global reach of this anticipated Messiah. The prophet said this. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. Zechariah 9.10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. According to Zechariah, the coming Messiah would signal the arrival of the promise of peace for God's people. The Messiah will speak words of peace to all the nations, to all the goyim, Contrary to their expectations, the coming Messiah wouldn't mean the destruction of nations. It wouldn't mean the destruction of Rome. The coming of the Messiah would signal the extension of God's blessing to all the nations, to all of the goyim, to all of the Gentiles. See, Zechariah's words, from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth, those were taken from King Solomon, from King Solomon's Psalm 72. May the Messiah have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see all the hyperlinks in this, in this document? The Bible has so many hyperlinks. We think that it's like a new invention. We are reading an article and you click on the link and it takes you back to the source article. The Bible's been doing that for thousands of years. This is really kind of cool. So Solomon said that the Abrahamic promises, the promises made to Abraham, of a blessing to the nations would be fulfilled through the just righteous, and international rule of the Savior that was foretold by God. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. As such, the details laid out in 2 Samuel 7 and Zechariah 9, 9-10 described how the faithful could be sure, how they could know that the Messiah had arrived and what they could expect the coming kingdom to look like. Now, according to Zechariah 9, the Messiah's reign would begin with his entry into the holy city on a mule and would be known for ushering in a peace between the Jews and the Gentiles and blessings for all. Now, catch this. 
It was the people who knew this background. It was the people who knew those details, who understood what they were seeing. Which brings us, finally, to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday. Because the celebration of Passover was the next pilgrimage festival. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday would be about more than just his arrival in town for Passover. It would be his proclamation of his identity and the beginning of his implementation of his plan for God's kingdom here on earth, a kingdom that's available to all peoples, that's characterized by blessing and peace. So Palm Sunday began on the outskirts of Jerusalem with Jesus instructing his disciples to bring him a donkey to ride into the city. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are they doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. I'm just borrowing your donkey. And then they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus, and he threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So at the same time, so here's Jesus getting ready to enter into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, and at the same time, In the same way that he arrived in town six months earlier for the Feast of Booths. And for the same purpose to ensure the peace by showing Roman strength. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate and thousands of men marched into Jerusalem through the other gate in town. Through the western gate as was his custom. And he did so in order to proclaim Roman power. The power of the Roman Empire. But unlike his secret midweek entrance during the Feast of Booths, this time on the other side of the city, on the east gate of the city, Jesus conspicuously out in the open arrived in town. And while Pilate's entry was marked with pageantry and shock and awe associated with the Roman army and all of its power and all of its might, Jesus' entry on the other side of town was marked by humility and hope and celebration. And the peasants who prayed for this moment for their entire lives welcomed him. So Jesus coming on the other side of town. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. They understood. They knew what they were seeing. They knew what they were witnessing. This time Jesus was arriving as the Messiah. So they shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Why did they say that? Because they could read it in the psalm that they were all familiar with. They'd all been taught from childhood. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the highest house of the Lord. This is interesting. The Hebrew word yasha, which means to deliver or save, and ahna, which means to beg or beseech, combined to form the word that we render in English, Hosanna. So literally, Hosanna means, I beg you to save us, or please deliver us. So therefore, we remember Palm Sunday rightly when we recognize it as the moment 
When we recognize it as the point in time that Jesus set into motion the series of events that God the Father would use to bring a lost and broken people to himself. These events would, in fulfillment of other ancient prophecies, lead to the unlawful arrest, the beating, the trial, the conviction, the execution, and the resurrection of God's only Son, Jesus, the Savior. So as we wrap up today and head into Easter week, let's take some time this week to reflect upon our Savior, who He is, and how He gave His life so that we could have ours abundantly and eternally connected to our Father in heaven. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as we head into Holy Week, for showing us that this is something you've been telling your people for thousands of years, that you love them so much that even though they sin, even though they're broken, even though they don't deserve anything from you, you love them enough to send a Savior. And it's our tradition and custom that as we head into this Holy Week, we consider that the Savior, at this point in time in history 2,000 years ago, showed up on the scene to finish what he had started, to take our sins on himself and pay the penalty that we deserve, death. But then to rise back from the dead and to promise one day to come back to earth to usher in God's kingdom. God, we thank you that you're able, that we're able to turn from the way we were and understanding what Jesus did for us on the cross, devote our lives to him so we too can have life eternal. God, bless us this week as we consider who you are and what you've done for us. And God, draw us closer as we head into the rest of this holy week. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.